You're listening to Elk Point Baptist Church. Subscribe to our podcast to hear every sermon and like us on Facebook by searching Elk Point Baptist Church, located in Elk Point, South Dakota. Hand goes out, goes in. <laughs> There's a reason I, uh, definitely a reason I slow mosey my way up here. Uh, <laughs> he's like, make your way. I'm like, yeah, I'll make my way. <laughs> Uh, well, first I wanted to start off by saying uh, what a blessing it was when he said that the children could go to their classes and half our congregation just went. Yeah, half our congregation is children. That's a blessing. Uh, so we should be praising God for that. Uh, that is our church now. I mean, that, I mean, yes, it's our future, but it's our church now, and it's a blessing constantly. So don't feel bad about bringing kids. We love it. Uh, today's... Uh, lesson is all about real relationships. Now, on the title, if you were to look at it, you would look at me and be like, well, you're not really the authority on that one. I would agree. However, uh, this is church relationships, and I have a lot of experience in that because of my relationships here in this church, and I'm very thankful for this family and, and the relationships I've developed here, and I'm confident that on the Word of God, the true authority, we can, as a church, understand what it means to have a real church relationship. So turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 is our text verse. Uh, later we'll be going to Matthew chapter, uh, chapter 18, but we'll, you can wait until, until we get there. Uh, authentic church life requires authentic relationships. If you're to have a real, thriving, God-driven church, you need real relationships. It cannot be surface level. It cannot be a fake church it cannot be somebody you know smiling to you in front of you and talking all nicey nice and then turning around and talking to somebody else and bashing you the whole time i've been there it's not a church that thrives an authentic church life requires authentic relationships because the local church is made up of people that includes you and me we must learn how to function properly in our relationships with one another. You could refer to church relationships as body life or interconnectedness, but whatever term you use, relationships with real people can be difficult. I think we can all understand that. How do we maintain love, unity, and fellowship in the church body through our relationships with one another? How do we do that? But as you might expect, a topic of this size is addressed often in Scripture. It's all throughout the Bible. In fact, the entire Bible is written as a love letter to us. It's God's demonstration of how we love and how much he loved us. And in the main sermon today, the main message, we're going to see what he did for us. In this lesson, we're going to look at several of these passages. So starting with Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, we'll read these three verses. It says that he that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, I'll say that again, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly jointed together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase the body in, unto the edifying of itself in love. You're probably sitting there thinking, what? <laughs> That's a lot to, to think about in three verses there. But we're going to break that down. Ephesians 4 gives us three core truths about 
a spiritual body of believers. Three characteristics that we can see in the relationships of growing Christians. Number one, there is a developing maturity in verse 14. If you look at verse 14, you can see a developing maturity. As Christians mature in faith, they develop a hardiness that helps them hold fast, be firmly grounded and rooted to their faith in Christ during the trials of life and times of confusion. We are no more like kids that get knocked over by something in our life, but we are firmly grounded in Christ. That's a sign of maturity. Now, number two, there is a devotional growth in verse 15. As we grow in our love for God, we also grow in our love for one another. It is hard to contain our love when we are drawn close to God's love. When we feel the presence of God's love in our life, it overflows. We start to love people. At, and then we will be committed to lovingly speaking truth to another as we mature in Christ. We no longer seek to harm people, but to build them up, to encourage them, to pray for them, to be there for them. It is, it is an effect of being a Christian and walking close with God. Number three, there is demonstrated love in verse 16. A spiritual body of believers will work to edify and build one another up. We will grow together and build each other up and lift each other up and encourage each other. The local assembly, our church, is a gift from God. He did not, we didn't just happen to come together. I am very confident that each and every single person that is either here today for the first time or has been here since the beginning of this church has been brought here by God to be a part of this family. And it has had a huge impact in my life, in my family, but I guarantee in each and every one of our lives there has been an impact. There's a reason we come together. There's a reason we don't forsake the assembling of one another. It is a privilege to have these kind of relationships in our lives and in to, to invest into the lives of other Christians in spiritual relationships. It is a gift to have that opportunity. But as vital as spiritual relationships are in the church, they are not always easy. For one thing, not every church member is always walking in the spirit. Don't think about somebody who you can think of right now. But we have experienced that. Sometimes fellow church members act as if they didn't even know the Lord at all. So what do you do when another believer offends you? What about when a Christian falls out of fellowship with the Lord? The church is made of real people. We need to start there. We are real people. We are going to fall. We are not perfect. When the realities of fleshly tendencies set in, how do we respond to that? How do we relate to one another in a way that helps us pull back to walking in the Spirit? One thing about authentic Christian relationships is clear from God's word. God desires that we grow in our relationship with him and with our fellow believers. There should be a slide for that. He desires that we grow in our relationship with him and with our fellow believers. In this lesson, we will look at three types of believers that are part of every church, and we will study three passages from God's word that teach us how to relate to these Christians. God's word is a guidebook for us, and we're going to look at that. The first point for today, number one of three, is willful offenders. They make a choice to offend. If you have been saved for more than 30 days, or sometimes within a week, you have probably already experienced an offense from somebody you didn't expect it from. Even godly spiritual Christians can occasionally offend each other. Jesus dealt with this very issue in Matthew chapter 18, and you can turn there now. 
chapter 18. One might wonder why Jesus even needed to address this issue with his disciples. After all, they were, per or they had a perfect leader. Uh, they were the first ones called. They were supposed to become the model church. Yet Jesus had to pause and tell them how to get along with one another. Because they're people. <laughs> he had to stop and tell his disciples. Even more so, we need to learn from that. So looking back to the beginning of Matthew 18, we can see the heart of this issue and why the discussion needed to be raised in the first place. In verse 1, at the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That was their heart. <laughs> they want to know who's going to be the greatest. The disciples were so focused on lifting themselves up and advancing their personal aspirations that they were sure to run each other over in the process. They were competing with each other. Sometimes a little competition is not bad. But our competition with one another should be to grow each other, not to tear each other down. And we can learn that from these, these 12. At the heart of personal offenses, there is usually pride involved. When pride gets in the way, we are bound to offend each other. So Jesus, what did he do? He set a child in the midst of his disciples and gave them an object lesson of humility in verses 2 through 5. He included or concluded with this lesson a strong warning against offending so much as a little child. In verse 6, but whosoever, or but whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he, he were drowned in the depth of the sea. And then Jesus told his disciples that although it is inevitable that offenses will come, it is far better to be the one who has been offended against than to be the one offending. Look at verse 7. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Continuing in this context, Jesus instructed his disciples how to respond when offenses come. So this is where it gets good. Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Moreover, with or if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. So what do you do when a church member has done something offensive towards you? It's easy to look at these options and say, this is what I'm going to do. But what are you actually going to do? You have to consciously think about that. You have to decide that. In the police or in the military, you go through scenarios to help you understand what you're actually going to do in that situation when it comes. Instead of just reading about it, you practice it. You think about it. You visualize it. You go through it. So that way, it is a muscle memory reaction. We need to go to that person first. So, letter A, acknowledge the offense. Almost inevitably, when someone learns that they are supposed to go to the person who has offended them, they have a good reason not to. I can't do that because he's in the church, so, or he's been into the church so much longer than me, I can't possibly talk to them about this. Or, I know that she won't receive it well, or I just think I can't express myself, I'll probably say something I shouldn't, but Jesus' command is very clear. If there's something that has offended you, 
someone that's offended you and you are not able to simply lay it at the cross and move on, which is probably a good place to start, then you need to deal with it. Christ instructs us to acknowledge our offenses, not to hide them or carry them as a continual chip on our shoulder, a.k.a. bitterness. Too many people carry offenses with them that eventually drive them away from fellowship with the rest of the body of Christ. They get so bad that they'd rather not come to church than to address this with somebody that honestly probably would understand. Eventually, the unaddressed offense that has been building in their heart explodes and becomes a major retaliation um, or relational rift. It splits them. Or one day they slip out the back of the door of the church due to anger that has been brewing for some time. Being part of the local New Testament church is a privilege. So we must honor this body by working through issues rather than allowing them to fester. We cannot let it fester because that's exactly what Satan wants it to be. He wants to split the church. And the easiest way to do that is come up with some reason, some assumption in our mind or some offense that maybe wasn't intentional, we don't know the motives of somebody else, to then cause a split between two people that causes a split between two families that then splits the church. So we have to guard against that. First, Christ instructs in Matthew 18 to resolve these offenses within the assembly of believers. When it comes to personal differences within the church, there is no higher court than the church itself. So 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and before the saints? One of the most damaging things Christians can do is to air their dirty laundry for the world to see it. How hurtful to to the cause of Christ for one Christian to state his negative feelings toward another Christian to the unsaved. Why would somebody want to be saved if we are telling them how bad Christians are? how much we fight with each other. No, no, nobody's going to want to come to the church if they already know it's like home. This is one of the reasons that Jesus instructed us to resolve the conflict within the concept, context of the local church. But who in the church do you go to uh, to write the offense, to correct it? Who do you go to first? Before I give you the answer, what, what do you think? Yep. Matthew 18, 15. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. In in an immaturity, (laughs) tongue tie there, uh, that will exasperate any type of offense is when a Christian begins spreading a relational difficulty through gossip. They'd rather tell the entire church before you. When a problem can be resolved between you and another person, resolve it just between the two of you figure it out between the two of you clarify ask questions say did you really mean to say that or what did you like did you mean to do this or what did you mean by that half the time it was something they had no idea counselor jay adams commented jesus won't allow the unreconciled condition to continue among believers. In Matthew 5, if another considers you you to have wronged him, Jesus says that you must go to him. Matthew 18, he says that if the other person has done something wrong to you, you must go to him. There is never a time when you can sit and wait for your brother to come to you. Jesus just doesn't allow for that. He gives no opportunity for that. It is always your obligation to go. 
So don't sit there and think, well, they need to come to me first. It's not going to happen. Satan will do everything in his power to keep it from happening. So we need to take the first step. We need to be the one to go. Perhaps someone has mistreated your child or cut you off in the parking lot. You just get to church, you're all happy, and all of a sudden somebody cut you off. Right here at church. Man, that would get my blood boiling, but I'd have to let it go or, or say, did you see me? Like, maybe I did something wrong in that situation. It's better to assume I did something wrong than assume they did. Some offenses we can just let go without holding it in our hearts, but if someone has done something truly offensive, God's plan is that you do not hide the problem, you do not allow bitterness to build in your heart, and you, and you do not spread the problem throughout the church, but you go directly to that person. Having a spirit of love and meekness and having an end goal of restored fellowship is vital to this process. That is why Jesus said, if he hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. You will, having addressed this with somebody, shown respect to that person. When you didn't announce it to the church, but you went to them individually and you got it figured out, that grows a friendship, a relationship that builds a brother or sister in Christ. God's process for dealing with offenses allows for us to regain fellowship through restoration instead of tearing each other down. It is crucial then that we approach the offender with a spirit of meekness and kindness. Romans 12, 21, be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. In some cases, the offender may not respond with meekness or kindness, but we must continue to overcome evil with good and persist in Christ-like love. It's easier to calm the situation with love than to react to it with, and be offensive yourself. And that leads us to the next step, letter B, approach the offender. God gives us three possible steps for approaching the offender depending on how the offender responds. First, he tells us to go one-on-one -on -one to the other person in verse 15. This verse, this verse spells it out. The offended person goes to the one who has offended him and tries to work things out in order to make their relationship right. It's important that we approach the offender in love. John 15, 12, this is my commandment. This is not a suggestion. This is my commandment that ye love one another as I have loved you. You will lay your life on the line to love that person rather than lay them on the line for yourself. Ephesians 4.15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. So initially, we don't even mention the scenario to anyone. We just go directly to the one who has offended us and work for a right relationship to correct the problem. And we, we uh, might say something like this, do you have a minute? I want, I want you to know I appreciate you, that I'm glad uh, we can serve the Lord together, but something just happened that has troubled me. Something something you did, I, I just have a question about, I want to understand it better, I want to know if I did something that caused this, and then you may find out that there was nothing, <laughs> which is better to clear the air and walk around happy than to be avoiding that person now, or, or uh, there's just, it, it just leads to bitterness, and that's not good. So when you're approached by another person, another Christian, your spirit should likewise be a spirit of love and grace. So if somebody got the courage to come to you to address an offense, you need to have the same spirit of love and grace towards them. That's a sign of respect for you. 
guard against a defensive spirit, and use that meeting as an opportunity to strengthen relationships. Someone once wrote these seven A's of confession, and keep these in mind when someone approaches you about an offense they felt from you. The first one is address everyone involved and only them. Only talk to the people who are part of the problem or part of the solution. Number two, avoid if, but, and maybe words. Those words are just blaming the other party and finding fault with them for your own failure. If I offended you, or maybe I was wrong, or if you hadn't said that, or I'm sorry, but you, <laughs> how many times have we heard all these? Uh, it, I'm sure I've said it many times too. I, I won't say I'm sure because that's another one of those words. I have said that before. That's me actually admitting it. Uh, number three, admit specifically what you did when possible. Don't say I might have done it. No, I did this. If you have the opportunity to admit it, admit it. Number four, apologize. Express your sorrow for your sin. Number five, ask for forgiveness. Most people leave this part out. The other party might be 99% wrong, but it isn't about them right now. It's about you. So admit and ask for forgiveness. Number six, accept the consequences. Make restitution if you can. Don't demand others pretend nothing happened. And number seven, alter your behavior. If you don't alter it, then you're just repeating the offense. So you have to alter the behavior. You won't be perfect, granted, but you'll get better. So repent before God. Come to God on a constant basis. Pray consistently. Come to the altar and say, Lord, I'm still struggling with this. Obviously, I don't want to offend this person. Obviously, I don't want to hurt this person anymore. Help me to be better. Help me to get past this. Help me to love them the way you love them. He commanded us to love one another as he loved us. So why would praying that not come through? Why wouldn't he grant that prayer? He will. Wouldn't, he, wouldn't following Jesus' plan of, of solving issues one-on-one -on -one take care of most relational tensions within the church? If he said to do it, then I'm pretty sure that it, it's a good plan. Anytime he has a plan, that's usually the one that works. We need to learn to deal with offenses as quickly as possible and to keep them as small as possible. If most offenses can be dealt with by a quick and simple meeting of two spiritual Christians, one acknowledging the offense and the other asking for forgiveness. But some offenses are not quite so simple. Where there is genuine issue of sin involved, not simply a personal grievance, and a one-on-one -on -one loving confrontation has not brought repentance, then you need to move to the next step, which is listed in these verses. If the offender refuses to admit his wrongdoing or settle the matter, the offended one then goes with witnesses. Matthew 8, 18, 16, but if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. So in some cases, if sin or of sinful behavior or compromise, which you have already personally addressed with a right spirit, you may need to move to this step. Perhaps you need to talk to the pastor or a godly leader in the church to ask for help with the situation because it might be outside of your scope of, of experience or understanding or, or you don't want it to get too heated. You want to address this in as loving a way as possible. Then go to somebody in the church, a godly leader, a pastor, somebody who has experience in this, and ask for counsel. 
uh, and bring them along maybe. 2 Corinthians 13.1, this is the third time I am coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. If this fails, the final recourse is to take the matter to the church. Matthew 18.17, and if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. In most instances, offenses can be solved early on that first step just by a personal one-on-one -on -one conversation. And where that fails, the situation escalates. The person has often already fallen away from the church by that time. Uh, and at that, by the time it gets there, you're going to be on to that third step. So Paul told the Corinthian church that uh, how to deal with a brother who was walking and living in open sin, refusing to repent, and expecting everyone in the church to condone his behavior. Look at 1 Corinthians 5, 11 through 13. It'll be on the screen, but you can turn there if you want to as well. Um, it says, but now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one, no, not to eat. For what have I to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? But them that are without God judgeth. Therefore put away from you among yourselves, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. So in every step of this process, we must remember that the purpose is restoration, not condemnation. We are to restore the relationship, not to condemn the person. Even in the final step of church discipline is done, the purpose is ultimately restoring godly fellowship with that person, is to bring them back. Habitually sinning people who are filled with bitterness must sometimes face the loss of fellowship to realize the gravity of their sin. Sometimes God gets us to the lowest point in our life to realize our need for him and for the body. Sometimes this is what it takes to bring repentance in their lives and to make things right in the church family. When a brother or sister willfully offends, we will begin going to them one-on-one -on -one and in love seeking to reconcile the relationship. The purpose is not to prove who is right or to create sides in the church. The purpose is to gain a brother or sister, to keep the church strong to the glory of God. It is to build the church, not destroy it. Where a personal confrontation fails, we move farther in Jesus' plan, but always we keep it within the church. The exception to this would be when there is a sin that is a legal crime, if it's a lot more serious, we would obviously go to civil authorities. Uh, but even then, however, we want to deal with the law in a way that does not bring reproach to the name of Christ. We never want to taint Christ's name. Uh, the church belongs to the Lord, and the local church is the highest authority on earth for spiritual matters. Offenses are not the only kind of relationship or relational issues in the church. In addition to willful offender, notice a second type of Christian you may encounter, wayward brothers, number two. So on the one hand, we have offending, an offending brother, one who has done something against you. But on the other hand, we have a wayward brother, which is one who has walked away from the Lord and from his church. How many people know somebody that's walked away? That is sad. But it happens. So how do we deal with that? What does a Christian do when a fellow Christian falls into sin? How do we restore this person to a right relationship with the church? Galatians 6 provides the answer for us in 
verse 1 and 2, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So letter A, we restore them. Spiritual casualties are a reality because we have a real enemy. It is a spiritual battle that we are in. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, who? The devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Satan is ever on the prowl seeking to harm or seeking to bring harm to God's people. The phrase overtaken in a fault is descriptive of Satan's entrance into Christians' lives. Overtaken means overwhelmed by or caught in. A fault refers to a lapse or deviation from truth and uprightness or a sin. None of us are immune to Satan's traps, and we have no room to hypocritically judge those who have fallen. We don't have room for it. It is our job, however, to acknowledge their sin and help them out of that ditch. Hebrews 12:1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. It is a joy to run the Christian race alongside brothers and sisters in the church who encourage us to press forward for the glory of God, who push us toward the mark that God has set for us, to push towards the kingdom. Yet sometimes a fellow runner will fall because of the weight or besetting sins in their own life. So how do we respond to that? We certainly shouldn't judge them for that. Some Christians will go on running, tossing back over their shoulder, ah, I knew that would happen. But a mature Christian will reach down and say, come on, let me help you up. Come back to the fellowship of God and his people. Instead of just being like, well, I knew they'd fall eventually. No, pick them up, help them on their feet, and continue running forward. Help them get rid of the problem and not enable it or laugh at it or, or cause an offense against them. But say, let's get up, let's do this, and encourage them, pray for them, and be alongside them running the race. We, all, we are all running together in this body. The, the foot doesn't run this way and the arms run that way. It doesn't make any sense. You've got to run as one unit together. So we need to build each other up and, and, and pull together. Letter B, we reinforce them. After someone has repented and is restored to fellowship in the church, they need special reinforcement. That is why Galatians 6.2 instructs us, Bear ye one another's burdens. When they are broken, they can't hold on to that by themselves. Sin brings burdensome consequences into a person's life. Even after a person repents of his sin and is restored to fellowship, he is likely to be carrying residual consequences of that sin. Scripture points out that while some suffering may cause a result of persecution for the name of Christ, some suffering is the result of our own sin. 1 Peter 4, 15, uh, 14 through 15, if he Reproach for the name of if you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of the glory of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. Verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. If a Christian reverts to an old lifestyle of drugs, his health may be forever altered. If a Christian spends a season in, in, in immoral living, whew, 
he will have consequences in his marriage and perhaps in his health for years to come. So the consequences of a wayward season of life can be heavy and can be discouraging for them. We may not be able to stop all of the suffering for people, but we can do our best to encourage and reinforce them. We can help them bear the burden by praying for them, reminding them that God's love and care, of his love and care, and encouraging them to continually humble themselves and to receive God's sufficient grace. Romans 15, 1, we then that are strong in the church ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. We should pick them up if we're strong. If we're in a good place, if we're on the top of that mountain, then we need to look at the people in the valley and help pull that rope, give them some strength to move up the mountain a little bit. Even when people commit an egregious sin, God will forgive them and renew fellowship with them, and they uh, turn him to re in repentance. Yet these Christians need mature brothers and sisters in Christ to reinforce them, to help them bear the burdens and encourage them to continue on. When fellow Christians are willfully offending, we go to them in love and meekness and seeking reconciliation with our relationship with them. And when a Christian is wayward, we seek to bring them back to the Lord and then encourage them to keep following the Lord. But what about those who are faithful? How do we strengthen our relationships with the majority of those in the church, the willing servants? Number three, willing servants. We are prone to focus the vast majority of our attention, counsel, and care on those who are wayward or those who are always in the middle of a crisis. But as we have just seen, these Christians do need our help and support. But we must not do it to neglect those who consistently and steadily serve the Lord alongside us in the church. There was many illustrations that were left in, in the lesson today, but I kept this one. Some faithful Christians, Christian servants, seem like they have never-ending batteries and just keep going. They don't express need to be recharged by recognition or encouragement. They just keep serving. Yet, these Christians, too, need our encouragement and support. We have servants in this church that need support sometimes. Ushers, nursery workers, choir members, children's Sunday school teachers, and other people. There, there's a lot of people in the background helping this church run smoothly. They serve and they invest themselves to bless the church family. They spend their time in choir practice, missing a church service to serve in the nursery, preparing Sunday school lessons, among other things. There's things we don't see. We don't know the hurt they might be in. So... What is it that the faithful servants need from us? How do we have a real and helpful relationship with them as well when we don't see them? Number A, or huh, number A, here we go. <laughs> edification. I need some encouragement up here. Everyone needs edification to be built up and encouraged. Every single person. And one of the best ways to encourage people is through the promises of God. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Hebrews 13, 11, 5 through 6, uh, sorry, 13, 5 through 6, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. 
We need to hear these kinds of promises regularly from each other, to be reminded of what God says. Even if we are not in the middle of a crisis, there is never a wrong time to be reminded that God is our helper and that he cares for us. There is something about hearing the word of God from the people of God that encourages us to continually serve faithfully. When we get tired, it's, it's so encouraging and power-inducing to remember God's word. We can easily get into a spirit of expectation, a consumer mentality, like we're going to get something out of this. Yet the Lord reminds us to look beyond ourselves and serve and encourage one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. Thank those who serve around you for their labor for the Lord. Encourage those who are going through a difficult situation. Greet other Christians with a genuine and warm word of encouragement. As Paul closed his epistle to the, to the Romans, he sent special greetings to those who were edifiers and laborers for the Lord. He said, I commend you, Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at uh, Centria? Is that right? All right, we're going with that. That ye receive her in the Lord as becometh saints, and that ye assist in her whatsoever business she hath need of you for she hath been a, a succor of many and of myself also great Priscilla and Aquila my helpers in Christ Jesus who have for my life laid down their own necks unto whom not only I give thanks but also all the churches of the Gentiles can you imagine how Paul's words of remembrance and gratefulness encouraged and built up these Christians we too can be people who invest in others by words of, edif of edification but number B, since I'm going on the number sequence here, encouragement. Have you ever just needed another Christian to say to you, don't give up? I know I have. Sometimes it feels like life just keeps coming at you. And you need someone to come along and remind you that there is a reward for the struggle and to keep pressing on. You need that. A boxer in the middle of what was turning out to be a difficult match, his trainer got to him in the corner and tried to encourage him. He said, champ, you're doing great. Keep it up. He hasn't laid a glove on you. The boxer wiped off the blood from his face and looked at the trainer through the one eye uh, that wasn't swollen shut. He said, well, you better keep an eye out for the referee then because someone there is knocking the daylights out of me. <clears throat> Have you ever had days when it felt like life had you down in a boxing ring? Sometimes you can't say much about those times or, or to other people maybe, but you just feel like you're walking in a daze. But when someone says, hey, I just want to tell you I appreciate you and I want to encourage you to keep you pressing forward, everything changes. Sometimes God will bring that along just when you needed it. There's something like having someone breathe hope into your life through words of encouragement. Just as you and I need encouragement, there are others around us who also need encouragement. The church is supposed to be a place where encouragement from God's word is freely given and freely received. William Arthur Ward said, Flatter me and I may not believe you. Criticize me and I may not like you. Ignore me and I may, I may not forgive you. Encourage me and I will not forget you. Perhaps even today you can remember words of encouragement someone spoke to you years ago. Paul was frequent in giving words of encouragement. One of these verses we are most familiar with is in Galatians 6, 9. He said, let us not be weary in well-doing, 
For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. There's a great verse to use to encourage others and to remind them not to give up, to stay faithful to the Lord. One of the reasons God has given us a church family is so that we can encourage each other to stay in the race. We have the incredible privilege of encouraging and edifying the faithful servants of God who serve around us. We dare not take their faithfulness for granted, but let them know we appreciate them. There are people who work hard in this church. Don't seek the recognition, but I guarantee would love to hear a word from us. So to close out, and, and we have time for a few questions or comments, authentic church relationships are possible as we follow God's relation, relationship blueprints. Where there is a willful offender, we should approach them and work toward reconciliation. Where there is a wayward Christian, we should restore them and reinforce them in the Lord. Where there is a faithful servant, we should encourage them and thank them for their faithfulness. Strong Christian relationships keep a strong or keep a church strong in the Lord. As we genuinely follow God's instructions concerning our relationships, we will have the real relationships that Christ designed for the church to model and enjoy, to help us stay in the fight. Do we have any comments or questions?